Amen. Let's all stay standing for the reading of the scripture. It comes from Matthew 24, verses 36 to chapter 25, verse 30. The words will be on the screen behind me. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving, giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom him whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed, and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and in an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. For it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, 
reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will be given, will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is God's word. Please have a seat. Well, if you want to start a fight in the church, you need only bring up one of two subjects. The color of the carpet or how the world's going to end. Now, I'm not recommending that we go around starting fights, uh, nor do I recommend that we avoid touchy topics. But it's a sad reality that among Bible-believing, gospel-preaching, Jesus-loving Christians that fellowship and partnership can so easily be broken over disagreements about the details of what we call eschatology. That's a nice uh, word for the study of the end, study of the end times, eschatology, how it's going to end. And that uh, potential for division was particularly true during the 20th century in North America. It's, by God's grace, less so today. But around the the turn of the 20th century, so early 1900s, as more and more Christian institutions and churches began to buy into modernism and move away from uh, faith, uh, uh, move away from the authority of the Bible and belief in the supernatural and things like that, a number of conservative evangelical scholars uh, began to work very closely together. So scholars who affirmed, had a high view of Scripture as God's Word and, and affirmed that salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. They began working together to articulate and guard what they called the fundamentals of the faith. Uh, this was fundamentalism not in the cultural and sometimes legalistic sense that we run into it today, but in the doctrinal sense. So the uh, foundational beliefs of historic, orthodox, biblical Christianity. So there was good collaboration. Uh, these scholars often taught together at Bible conferences. They published articles in each other's uh, journals and so on. But as time went on, and, and some of the different conferences began to give more and more focused attention to the minute details of eschatology, so again, how it's going to end, they also became more and more narrow and insular to the point where they no longer invited their friends to come teach at that conference. Not because they had denied Jesus or the Bible, but because they taught that Jesus was going to return you after the tribulation instead of beforehand or something like that. In time, eschatology became for some a mark of orthodoxy. If you don't believe what I believe about when and how all of this is going to happen with the return of Jesus, I'm not sure I can trust you on anything else. It became a prevailing attitude. 
it's an embarrassing part of the church's history, in my opinion. And again, I praise God that, that this attitude is changing. There's a lot of healthy collaboration happening across traditions in evangelicalism today with more diversity on these kinds of questions. And again, I think that's healthy and exciting. Uh, Not to say that these questions are unimportant or that they don't matter. They're not unimportant. But neither are they all important either. But all of this illustrates the point that when it comes to the subject of the end, we, like the disciples in this passage, have a tendency to fixate on the wrong questions. We really want to know when and how, which again, are not unimportant. But Jesus directs our attention to a more important question. How should we be living in the meantime? How should we be living in the meantime while we wait for Christ's return? That's the emphasis and focus Jesus calls our attention to in the passage before us the middle of Matthew 24 and 25. So please pray with me as we look at this passage together. Lord, above all things this morning, as your word is open before us, it's your voice that we want to hear. Lord, for some of us, the topic of the end is a hobby, and we love uh, arguing about it and being right. For others... We've never given it a minute's thought. We have uh, just continued to go on as though it's not that big a deal or we don't need to worry about it. And for others, it's a subject of great fear and anxiety. Uh, Lord, help us to think about these things according to your word and in light of your grace, in light of the hope and truth of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Give us ears to hear by your spirit, Lord, and help us not to make little of things that are important, but not to fixate on the wrong questions, Lord. Help us wrestle with the right question this morning, how we should live in the meantime. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, we're jumping into the middle of a conversation this morning, uh, in the middle of chapter 24, a conversation that started at the beginning of the chapter Uh, which we looked at a few weeks ago. Uh, We've been working through Matthew's gospel for some time, and and we're nearing the end. The the crucifixion of Jesus is just a day or two away at this part of the story, which kind of feels like a defeat is coming. But in reality, that's the point at which the the whole story has been driving to uh, all along. Jesus has come to establish God's kingdom on earth, as it is in heaven, and he's not doing that through force and violence like most worldly kingdoms do. He's doing it instead by laying his life down willingly on the cross. So the whole story has been driving toward that point. Jesus is launching or he's inaugurating God's kingdom on earth. It's beginning, and he's doing that through his first coming. When he returns in the end, when he appears You know, in royal victory, he's going to complete that process. His kingdom will be, as we call it, consummated. It'll be fulfilled. But right now, we're seeing the launch of it. And already, with the beginning of God's kingdom, the old order of things is beginning to pass away. 
things like the temple in Jerusalem, which Jesus condemned on Palm Sunday when he entered into the temple back in chapter 21, and which Jesus has told us is going to be destroyed, partly because of Israel's rebellion against God, and partly because of the fact that Jesus' own body is the fulfillment of the temple. It's the replacement of it. It's, it's, what, it's what the temple was supposed to point us forward to in the first place. If the temple was all about meeting with God on earth, going into his special presence. If Jesus is fully God and he's standing in front of you, you don't need a building to meet with God on earth. You just need Jesus. So his body, he himself was the fulfillment of that temple. And, and so therefore, that temple is going to be destroyed. And it's, and it's his talk about the coming destruction of the temple that gets his disciples asking questions about, about the end. How's it going to end? Uh, the beginning of chapter 4, as they're leaving Jerusalem and they're heading to the Mount of Olives, just outside of town, the disciples are marveling over the buildings in the temple court where he's been debating the Pharisees and such. And and Jesus replies to his disciples as they marvel at those buildings. You see all of these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And so... They want to know more. They, his, their interest is piqued. And so they come to him in verse 3 privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? The destruction of Jerusalem. And what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? Now, we looked at the first part of Jesus' answer a couple weeks ago um, in verses 4 through 35 where he corrects the disciples' assumption that when Jerusalem falls, Jesus' royal appearing and victory will take place at the same time. That was kind of their assumption. They thought they were asking one question. Jesus corrects them to show them they're actually asking two different questions. Uh, He spent most of those verses correcting that assumption. So in essence, he's saying to them, yes, Jerusalem's going to fall, and yes, I will come in victory. And, and you will make, there, there will be no mistakes about when that happens. But those two things will not happen at the same time. In fact, there will be a season of suffering and intense persecution, including the destruction of Jerusalem, that will begin during the disciples' very generation and last all the way up until Christ returns. And after that season, then Jesus will come in glory and power. That's what he was explaining to them in those verses. And the reason he wanted them to get that point is so that they weren't caught off guard when they get hit in the face with that kind of suffering, so that they wouldn't be deceived by false messiahs or or, uh, disoriented by the turmoil of the world or, or derailed by persecution. When Rome shows up and Jerusalem falls, he didn't want them sitting around, lighting off fireworks, getting ready to celebrate the return of Jesus, It's time to get out of town when that happens. You need to run. The end has not yet come, and you still have work to do in bringing the gospel to all nations. And so he he explains to them initially that there's going to be this season of tribulation and suffering in the life of the church as we carry out our mission, Uh, and, and, and to not get 
overly zealous about thinking that the end has already come when some of those hard things happen. Okay, so we, we get that. Can you give us just a little bit more information about when it's going to happen, though? We still want to know. Throw us a bone here. And so when we come to verse 36, Jesus picks up the when question again. He goes back to their original question. But he doesn't really throw us a bone. Instead, he emphasizes the fact that only his heavenly Father knows the answer to that question. And it will be swift and unsuspecting to many. So if you've got your Bibles open in front of you, or if you don't, I encourage you to do that. And look with me at Matthew chapter 24, verse 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. There's your answer to when. Only the Father knows. Now, it's kind of surprising in this verse to find out that not even Jesus knows the answer to that question. Uh, the day and the hour of his return, his royal appearing. I mean, Jesus is God. So isn't he omniscient like the Father? Um, well, yes, with respect to his divine nature, he is. But he's also fully human. And with respect to his human nature, he's not. Here's one of those verses in the Bible that kind of puts our brain into a knot, trying to figure out this mystery of the fact that Jesus is fully God and fully human in one person. One person with two natures. And he defers to the Father on this question of when. He's fully God, but he's fully human. And he defers to his Father on the question of when. Only the Father knows. What's funny in, to me is that you know, Jesus, who has the right and authority to know the answer of that question, defers to his Father. Whereas so many people throughout history have claimed to figure out what Jesus himself does not yet know. Um, published books and put, put it on billboards and such. Uh, it's funny, it's also dangerously presumptuous. Only the Father knows the day and the hour. That's his answer. But he does tell us a little bit about what that will be like. Specifically, how swift and unsuspecting it will be for those who do not follow Christ. And so there's a somber warning in these verses. He continues in verse 37. As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. 
Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Jesus' royal appearing, his return, what we call his parousia, it will mean victory for God and his kingdom and God's people and judgment for those who continue to rebel against God and his kingdom and his people. And they will not see it coming. That's the somber part of it all. They will not see it coming. Now, it's not uncommon for folks to read these verses and understand them to be talking about uh, something that's called the rapture. Uh, The belief that the church is going to be secretly taken up to heaven while the rest of the world is left to face the suffering of the Great Tribulation. Uh, If you've seen the book Left Behind, that entire book is built around that uh, event, as is the movie coming out by the same name uh, in a couple of weeks, starring Nicolas Cage, no less. We're moving up in the world. Now, that's one way to read this passage. But I'll be honest, I don't think it's an accurate way to read what Jesus is talking about here. For starters, because that reading assumes that everything chapter 24 is talking about is still future. Whereas we saw last week that that when we pay attention to the context, the tribulation Jesus is talking about is something that the disciples themselves were going to face and every generation after them up until his return. And second, because Jesus is drawing a parallel here between what happened in the days of Noah, how life is carrying on as normal and, and until the sudden judgment of the flood swept them away, and how life will carry on like normal until Jesus' return when God's judgment will be poured out again suddenly. One will be taken in judgment if we follow the parallel with Noah's flood. That's what taken is talking about there. One will be taken away in judgment one will be left in safety, those who belong to Jesus. And so, in other words, if we're reading this passage carefully, you should want to be left behind in the context here. The judgment is what carries people away. Now, that's probably a different understanding than some of us have in this room. That's okay. There is room for diversity on questions of how, you know, the details of how it's going to end. And honest, God-loving, Bible-believing Christians come to different conclusions on these things. That's okay. These things are not unimportant. We should think about them. We should wrestle with them. We should have opinions on them. But they're not all important. We should not divide over them. And regardless of where we land on a question like that, Jesus' point here emphasizes the suddenness of his coming. It has far more to do with the suddenness of his coming than with the precise details of when and how that's going to take place. And so, therefore, verse 42, we need to stay awake. Verse 44, we need to be ready. That's his point. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Jesus directs our attention to the more important question. How should we be living in the meantime while we wait for his coming, his return? So what then does it mean to be ready? 
What does it mean to stay awake? To not be caught off guard? That's what Jesus focuses on in verses 45 to 51, the rest of chapter 24. And what he focuses on again in, in 25, 1 through 30. Now that's a large chunk of text, but it's all making the same point. Which is why we're looking at it together this morning. And it's a point that Jesus summarizes in verse 45. Look at that with me. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? That's the kind of servant God is looking for in the meantime. Who is the faithful and wise servant? Notice that there's two qualities there, faithful and wise. And he's going to use Three illustrations to help us understand what he means by a faithful and wise servant. He uses the illustration of the servant and master at the end of chapter 24 here. Then he tells the parable of the ten virgins to illustrate what wisdom looks like. There's five foolish and five wise girls. So he's going to explain wisdom in that parable. Then he tells the parable of the talents where he explains what faithfulness looks like. Well done, good and faithful servant. That's the refrain of that parable. So Jesus is looking for faithful and wise servants, and he's going to explain what that looks like in these three illustrations. In each illustration, the key figure, the master or the groom, goes away or is absent, but is coming again soon. So that's in common with each illustration. The key question is how his people will live in the meantime. That's the key question in each of these illustrations. Will they be wise and faithful or self-serving, presumptuous, and lazy? And what's at stake in each case is nothing less than eternal judgment. The same thing that was at stake in the analogy with Noah and the flood. Weeping and gnashing of teeth, being shut out from the kingdom of God. This is serious stuff he's talking about. So these three illustrations are helping us understand what Jesus is looking for in the kind of person who is ready, who is awake, the faithful and wise. And each of these could be their own sermon. But again, I think we, we, there's something to be gained in seeing how they work together to help us understand how we're called to live in the meantime. And the first call is to be trustworthy, not self-serving. To be trustworthy, not self-serving in 24, 45 to 51. So look again at verse 45 with me. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at their proper time? Blessed is the servant whom his master will find doing so when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set over him all his possessions, set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to him, well, my master is delayed, and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus is coming again. But we don't know the time. 
The question here is, what will he find us doing when he comes? That's the question. If you're a parent, you know that there are few greater joys than walking into a room and seeing your children doing what you just asked them to do before you left the room. You know, whether they're picking up their toys or playing nicely or making their bed. You also know that there are few things more frustrating than walking into a room and seeing that they have completely disregarded your instruction. Or worse, have taken advantage of your absence and are coloring on the walls or duct taping their little brother to the closet door or something like that. While the cat's away, the mice will play. That's our mindset. And it's a very real temptation to take advantage of Jesus' absence in that way. And to use this time while we wait for him to get what I want out of life. To think that since he's not here, he's never going to know. He'll never catch me. And so we use people, we even abuse them for our own selfish gain. As long as I look busy when he walks in the room, I'll be okay. But that's just it. No one knows the hour. No one knows the day or the hour. We're foolish to think that we can outmaneuver Jesus in our selfishness and greed. We're really stupid if we think he doesn't already know. And we betray where our faith really lies with that kind of mindset. Not in Jesus as our Savior and King, but in me and the things of this world I think are going to fulfill me. That's what I'm really trusting and hoping in when I try and exploit Jesus' absence for my own selfish gain. But only Jesus can give us lasting satisfaction in life. A satisfaction that outlives the grave and that outshines anything that this world can offer. The eternal joy of knowing Christ and being found in him. The exceeding joy of pleasing Christ and being found faithful before him. There is joy in that. Jesus has given us work to do. It's what we talked about last week when we looked at the question of what does it mean to follow Christ? To live all of life in loving relationship with God, serving him in joyful obedience as a display of his glory. We talked about how if we trace what is it that God's looking for us, What has he made us for? What has he saved us for throughout Scripture? It's this. You were put on this earth not just to make as much money as possible or to help your kids get into the right college. You were put on earth not just to find happiness or to avoid suffering at all costs. Not that any of those things are bad, but they're not ultimate. They will not satisfy and they will not last. You were put on this earth to live all of life in loving relationship with God. Serving him in joyful obedience as a display, as a picture of his grace and his glory. A reflection of him. And to help others do the same. To make more followers 
of Christ, to give my life away, to invest it in others so that others too will grow in knowing and treasuring Jesus and walking with him. Which doesn't mean that everyone's called to full-time ministry, that you're wasting your life if you're not in full-time ministry. That is so far from the truth. But it does mean that all of us are to be growing and learning and obeying the scriptures in the context of community for the sake of God's mission, giving our lives away that others might, make, might know Christ. Jesus told us in 2414 that the gospel of Jesus must be proclaimed throughout the whole world and then the end will come. We have work to do as his followers. And so be trustworthy in the meantime, not self-serving. Use the time he's given us for his purposes. Be doing what God has called you to do. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. So that's the first answer to the question, how do we live in the meantime? The second is be watchful, not presumptuous. Be watchful, not presumptuous. And Jesus illustrates specifically here the kind of wisdom he's looking for through the parable of the ten virgins. So chapter 25, 1 through 13. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. And then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Well, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Now, there have been several attempts uh, to draw conclusions between ancient Jewish wedding customs and the details of this parable. The Internet's full of fun uh, theories about it. Uh, Few, if any, of those attempts have any historical background or source to them. Most of them were built and made up off of this parable. But that's okay, because we don't have to know everything about the background of a parable in order to understand the point. The point's very clear in this story. Uh, Jesus is telling a story as an example of what the kingdom of heaven will be like. In other words, specifically the kingdom when it's fully realized, when he returns in the end. And the king is portrayed as a groom in this story, which is a common metaphor used to describe Christ. Think of it. He used it clear back in in Matthew chapter 9, Revelation 19, the wedding supper of the Lamb. It's a very uh, meaningful, significant metaphor. And the groom in this story is going to come at some point in the night to claim his bride. And there are 10 young girls who are excited to go out and meet him and to escort him there as kind of part of the fun, part of the celebration. They've all brought their lamps 
while they wait, but we're told that five were foolish and five were wise. Five of them came prepared with extra oil in case the grooms delayed. Five of them did not. And as it is in the story, those who were unprepared were caught off guard. Their lamps ran out. They had to go purchase the oil. And and while they were doing that, the groom arrives and the entourage is escorted into the party and the door is shut. The party is shut. The kingdom is shut. When they come, they find themselves shut out, which kind of sounds harsh. And maybe it is for a wedding, but Jesus isn't talking about wedding etiquette. He's talking about something far more important, what it means to live wisely as we wait for his return and not find ourselves shut out of the kingdom. It means being prepared. Wisdom here means being prepared. That's the contrast in the story. Five were prepared, five were not. Five were prepared, five were presumptuous. The foolish girls presumed upon the groom's kindness. You might even say they had a bit of an entitlement mentality, you know, that the groom owes it to them to let them in to the party, even if it's their own fault that they were unprepared and late. As one commentator puts it, too little preparation and too much presumption will result in rejection. And that's a temptation uh, to be unprepared and presumptuous in our waiting as well. We think that because Jesus isn't yet here, I've got time. I've got time again to do what I want. I've got time to, to figure things out later. Then I'll worry about God. It's kind of like the proverbial deathbed resolution where I'm going to trust Jesus right at the end of my life. I don't know if anybody has ever heard somebody or perhaps said that. Uh, before, but I, I want to have fun in life, but I don't want to go to hell. So I'm just going to give my life to Jesus right at the end. So that way I can make the most out of both, you know? After all, isn't it God's job to kind of forgive? But once again, nobody knows the day or the hour. Whether we're talking about our own death or we're talking about the Lord's return. And it's not God's job to forgive. It's his gracious gift, and we best not exploit it or presume upon it. So watch, therefore. Be ready. Be wise. Be prepared to meet Jesus when he comes. Don't put off repentance till tomorrow if you can do it today. Don't think that I can exploit his absence. Be prepared. Now, that doesn't mean we're not going to make mistakes. Uh, One author reminds us, of course, these warnings are held within the larger picture of the gospel, in which Jesus embodies the love of God, which goes out freely to all. Of course, we shall fail. Of course, there will be times when we go to sleep on the job. Part of being a follower of Jesus is not that we always get everything right but that we quickly discover where we're going wrong and take steps to right it. So you have to keep these warnings in the context of the gospel, that we're not 
rescued from our sin because of our own works, but by God's grace. And yet there's a temptation in all of us to take that grace for granted and to exploit it for selfish gain. And that's what he's warning believers against right here. Those who don't know Jesus is a very strong warning not to be caught off guard and unprepared. But even we need to hear that warning so that we don't take God's grace for granted and exploit it. So be trustworthy, not self-serving. Be watchful, not presumptuous. And then finally, number three, be diligent, not lazy. And that brings us to the parable of the talents. So look at verses 14 and 15 with me. For it, meaning the kingdom of heaven again, will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability, then he went away. So again, the key figure is going away, but will be coming again. Same setup to the story. And once again, he gives his servants a responsibility and a task to be about in the meantime, each according to his ability, which he clearly thinks highly of each of these servants because a a talent is an ancient uh, monetary measure that was equivalent to about 20 years' wages. So he has high confidence in each of these people despite the different amounts he entrusts to them. And the question that we're supposed to ask once again is how did they live in the meantime? What did they do with the responsibility given to them while they waited for the return of the master? Verses 16 to 18. He who received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. You kind of see where this one's going. Verse 19, now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I've made five talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter the joy of your master. And then we see the exact same commendation for the one who had two talents, verses 22 to 23. And he also who had two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I've made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter the joy of your master. So these first two servants are the kind that the master's looking for. They are faithful. Remember, The question back in in verse 45, who then is the faithful and wise servant? We saw that wisdom means watching in the last parable. Here, faithfulness means working, means being diligent with what we've been given to do. And that's what they did. They took what the master entrusted them with, and they used it to gain even more glory and more gain for the master. They were good and faithful. And in this parable, he's talking about money. Of course, as we apply it, we can really think about anything that God entrusts us with for the sake of his kingdom. 
money included, but our time, our, our abilities, our gifts, our talents, our energy, our ideas. What are we doing with the things God has given us to bring glory and honor to God and his kingdom? Are we being diligent with what we've been entrusted with for the sake of the gospel? He who is faithful with little will be entrusted with much. There's a reward for faithfulness in this parable. As we trust and follow Jesus, we shouldn't be surprised to see him asking more of us and entrusting greater responsibilities to us. But then we see the contrast in verses 24 and following. The temptation to be lazy instead of diligent. Verse 24. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. His master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sowed and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take from him, take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. It's a picture of judgment. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So it ends again on this somber note of warning for us. Unlike the first two servants who were faithful with what was entrusted to them, this servant is lazy. He's slothful. And as a result, he finds himself condemned. Now, he says it's because he was afraid. He points to the master's questionable reputation. And even if that was true, and it doesn't seem like the master is entirely convinced, it's still no excuse for completely abdicating his responsibility. I mean, 20 years' wages is worth quite a bit in interest if you just stick it in the bank. He could have at least done that much. But it's interesting that he cites fear here. Because I think for many of us, when it comes to the idea of Christ's return and the somewhat crazy-sounding things we read in Revelation or, or, or different things like that, That's one of our most common responses to the idea of Jesus' coming, fear, to be afraid of it, to be freaked out. Not because he has a questionable reputation, but because we're focusing on the wrong thing. When I was in middle school, I went to a haunted house one Halloween that was put on by a couple area churches, and the theme of that house was being left behind. And each room you walked through was a different tribulation. You know, they had like clothes hangers. They'd poke you in the ankles for the scorpions or, you know, the Antichrist was there dressed in black and all this kind of stuff. And the the goal was quite literally to scare the hell out of you, to make you so afraid of going there that you wanted Jesus instead. That was their point. But it also creates an environment where the day of the Lord's return is something to be terrified of rather than invited and hoped in. For the Christian, the Lord's return is not something that should strike fear into our hearts, but joy and anticipation. 
as Paul puts it in 1 Thessalonians 5. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, we have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Sounds like Matthew, doesn't it? While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. For those who know Jesus and love Jesus, you have nothing to fear at the Lord's coming, but everything to hope and rejoice in. Because it means that all that's wrong in this world will finally be put to right. That there will be no more tears, no more crying, no more death, nothing that that deprives God of his glory, that our lives will be full and satisfied forever in his presence the way they're supposed to be. That is something to long for and to hasten in its coming. And notice then what Paul goes on to emphasize, which is the same thing that Jesus emphasizes in Matthew 25. Therefore, if we have nothing to fear, stay awake and get to work. 1 Thessalonians 5, 6. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Don't be lazy and go to sleep. Be diligent. Be diligent in the meantime. And it's this laziness is what the master condemns the servant for. Not fear, interestingly. You wicked and slothful or lazy servant. His offense was what we call a sin of omission instead of a sin of commission. It was the sin of not doing what he was supposed to do. And there's a temptation for us to be lazy as well. Maybe because we are afraid. Maybe we're, we're afraid of failure or we're afraid of, of rejection. Maybe because we're distracted by the shiny things in this world and, and we're more interested in those. Maybe because we're bored with the idea of following Christ. We're like a teenager playing video games all day in his parents' basement because everything else is lame. School's lame, homework's lame, following Jesus is lame, and we just kind of have this, this, we're bored with the idea of following Christ. It doesn't appeal to us. But if we're bored by the gospel, if we're unmotivated by the prospect of having relationship with the God of the universe, who's too holy to approach, but who dwells in us by the Holy Spirit because of his grace, if that's boring to us, if, if we're not enthralled by the beauty and glory of God, who by his, his favor and his love for us who deserve his wrath, 
If we're not energized by the adventure of helping others know him and seeing lives changed eternally by the grace of God through the gospel, if that doesn't get us excited, then we simply don't understand Christianity. We've forgotten who God is and who we are in him. And we've forgotten how the story ends. Jesus will come again in victory. His kingdom will reign forever. We will be vindicated from those who oppose us or reject us because of our faith. Jesus will receive the glory due his name. Because of his coming, we work with confidence and hope, knowing that our work will bear fruit for the gospel, that our work is not in vain. We have that hope because he's coming again. D.L. Moody, uh, who was a shoe salesman from Boston and more notably known for being the founder of Moody Bible Institute uh, in Chicago, he was one of the prominent leaders among evangelical Christianity at the turn of the 20th century, back when studies on the end began fragmenting the church. And he was one of several voices of reason at that time. Not that he ignored those kinds of questions, but he became more vague about eschatological details in his later years while urging all believers to watch, wait, and above all, work. Watch, wait, and above all, work. Great summary of this passage. May it be so among us, and may our Lord find us doing so when He comes. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the confidence and hope that we have in Christ. Thank you that we have confidence not only that His work on the cross was sufficient. For our sins, that his resurrection really does give life, that you are with us now by your spirit. But we have confidence that he will be faithful to return in the end. And so therefore, Lord, we can work with joy and anticipation while we hasten his coming. And so, Lord, we do. We we pray that we would be faithful. We pray that we would be wise. Keep us from laziness and presumption. Keep us from self-centeredness. May we be found hard at work, not out of our own effort, but by the grace and strength of your spirit. Lord, may we find joy in serving you, our master. And may you bear much fruit while we wait for your coming. In Jesus' name.